standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to day six of our International Women's Day 2020 series of interviews. Although you can of course listen to them in any order you please. We're not your real mums. What's happened so far? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hannah and Jen chatted with the incredibly talented and utterly charming Amelia Bullmore. I came over all optimistic feminist with inspirational activist, author of Five Rules for Rebellion and all-round top woman Sophie Walker. Jen enjoyed talking ageing stars, lonely women and parrot impressions with national treasurer in a tiny hat, Sue Pollard. Theatre maker and actor Andrea Heaton chatted to me about her new play Smile Club, which imagines a government drive that exists to tame unruly women. And the brilliant Helen Lewis told Jen and I all about her excellent new book, Difficult Women, The History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. They are, if I do say so myself, cracking treats for your ears. Still to come, Hannah chats with Sama Habib about what it's like both to be LGBT in Muslim communities and a Muslim in LGBT communities. But for this, the International Women's Day Eve, yeah, yeah, we're making it a thing, episode, I caught up with fierce feminist, relentless activist and CEO of the Women's Resource Centre, Vivian Hayes. We chatted challenging systemic sexism, the power of solidarity, the vital importance of women's spaces and pay back the tampon tax, which is the Women's Resource Centre's brilliant campaign for the government to give the women's sector the cash raised by VAT on tampons and sanitary pads, which it promised to do, then didn't. I'm too surprised to stay standing, hold me. Anyway, it is a campaign well worth getting behind, I'm sure you'll agree. And you can find ways to get involved at www.wrc.org.uk. Hello, I am at the Women's Resource Centre with its CEO, Vivian Hayes. Hello, and thanks for having me. Hello, Mickey, and thank you for coming along. First of all, let's start with the basics. Tell us about the Women's Resource Centre. What is it? What are its aims? And why is it necessary? So we are the leading national body for women's little charities all over the country. We support them with training, information, but we also importantly bring them together. So like an umbrella? That's right, we are the umbrella body. And we do loads of different things, but a lot of what we do is based on collaboration, working together, building collective action, and also trying to make sure that they get money to keep their doors open because it's harder than ever now. Oh, absolutely. So when was it set up? Well, it's been going quite a long time, but it's kind of changed what it's it does so initially it was just like a drop-in center for women okay and then in the early 80s after consultation with women's charities in london it became a london-based umbrella body and then it became national and why is it important for these smaller charities to have somewhere that brings them all together i mean if you look at any newspapers or wherever Rarely would you even know that there's a women's sector that exists in the country. <laughs> oh, I hear you. And we estimate that there's about 20,000 women's organisations and groups across the country who, unless you need a service or you know somebody who works in the sector, nobody knows anything about us. We're just quietly getting on with it, saving women's lives and supporting women who often are at the very sharp end of discrimination and so our job is to try and amplify their voices and be a bit like a super highway to decision makers and for us what's really important is to bring that diversity of voice where we it's not just 
the mainstream white middle class women's concerns. We bring in the concerns of women who are living in abject poverty, who are experiencing racism, all those kind of things. And um, a great example of us bringing orgs together is our work in London with the Violence Against Women and Girls Consortium of 28 orgs, where we've secured, I think, almost 30 million over 10 years for those organisations. Wow. Because we can go for grants and contracts together, because the environment now favours one large contract, which means the little specialist orgs are missing out on the money. You know, that's contrary to what women constantly say they want. It's an organisation near them, run by women who look like them. Yeah, and that's it. You just touched on that beautifully there, in that the change we need is structural and systemic. And it's very hard for individuals or small organisations to make that impact. Yeah. yeah which is why it's so important for us all to like work together. Absolutely. I mean, again, all evidence shows that the major changes for women have been brought about by women's independent collective action. That is how we get improvements for women's rights. So you've touched there on intersectionality, which quite rightly is, is it's a word that wasn't even around maybe like 10 years ago, but it's very much or wasn't in the popular domain 10 years ago, I'm sure you've heard it before, but it's very much bandied around now, and rightly so. But the aspect of intersectionality I want to touch on with you is class, which I think seems to be a category that gets forgotten, or potentially even worse, dismissed. Yeah, when I'd yeah. argue it's actually as important, if not more important than yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, being from a working-class family mm -hmm. in the North, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think it's like the elephant in the room sometimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could ask yourself why, and there's lots of reasons why, but one of the things we could point to is the Equality Act, which lists what are called protected characteristics, which, in other words, is discriminated against groups. So yeah. you've got sex, you've got race, age, blah, blah, blah. But there was meant to be one around, it was termed socioeconomic, which is kind of another word for class. Yeah. But that was never put in. And so it's almost like class has been rubbed out of public policy and legal documents. It doesn't exist anymore, Vivian. Well, <laughs> so we like know different. Absolutely. We know different. Yeah. I think, you know, class has become a really contested point and not talked about. And women are impoverished. You know, there's a poster on our wall here saying that 89% of government budget cuts directly affect women. Yeah. So austerity over the 10 years, women have paid for it. Universal the, credit. Yeah. And the women who've paid the most are poor working class women, which includes black women, disabled women, the poorest women in society. There was the Marmot report last week saying that actually women in poorer communities, so that's class again, their life expectancy is reducing. Yeah, I saw that. It's horrible. And so actually you could say that the sexist government policy making is killing working class women. And I just want to make a note that when I say working class women, I don't mean just white women. Because again, that kind of the public debate and discourse around class 
almost makes an assumption that we're talking about white people. Well, m- white men is usually yeah. the assumption, isn't yeah. it? If you think, yeah. I think if you see any pictures that are referred to with working class, yeah. Yeah. you think it, it's always white working class men. You go back to the miners and that representation, mm-hmm. when of course working class mm-hmm. is a hugely mm-hmm. intersectional mm-hmm. sector of society. Well, it's the majority of the country, actually, yeah. isn't it? Not the minority. I think also if you're a, a working class woman looking at feminism as the the sort of mainstream feminism it can be quite hard to see yourself and your role within it particularly when you talk about stuff like equality within the workforce and for a lot of middle class women it's it's new to be able to go to work to be able to go to university when actually like working class women have pretty much always worked you didn't you didn't get an option yeah yeah that's very true very true indeed i think the women's movement and feminism has its challenges shall we say oh i mean when i was 16 and my later teens i did not feel that feminism spoke to me at all Mm. because i saw it as a very white middle class arena and i know also lots of black women felt the same and they you know they coined other phrases like womanist because feminism did not include them and i think we still have some way to go in making feminism inclusive of all women. And I think that is compounded by the fact that the women who get the opportunities or who are sitting around the table with decision makers are predominantly white middle-class women. Yeah. Their consciousness and memory of life does not include the struggles of working-class women. And so they will often not focus on that. And that's where I come in. <laughs> and I think tell, think, tell me oh, more. Tell me more. I think they think, oh, it's that gobby bitch again. <laughs> we love a gobby bitch. <laughs> um, love them. Because, you know, my job has afforded me certain privileges to have a voice. Yeah. And so I have a responsibility to make sure when I speak or when I bring forward issues that I am bringing forward the voices of the women who never get heard and the things that are happening to them. And people don't like it. I mean, I remember it was years ago, I went to some, uh, I don't know if it was a Labour Party conference in Brighton. I mean, this is quite a long time ago. And there was a fringe meeting about women and housing and violence against women. It was all very nice and rather superficial in my view and I said you know I'd been speaking to one of our members and they said that a woman had come to them and she'd been to the housing office she was fleeing domestic violence and she needs somewhere to live and stay and the housing officer told her which was the safest park to sleep in wow yeah and the politician basically just dismissed me as an unreasonable woman and they want to work with reasonable organisations. So it's like when you speak the actual truth, people don't always want to hear it. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Yes, it is uncomfortable. And we need to be uncomfortable because that's how change happens. Well, if we're going to actually make the lives of women better, first of all, we need to know what's going on for them. Yeah. You can't have a remedy or a solution to something that you don't know is happening. This kind of slow drip, drip, tinking around the edges approach to changing policy is not actually working because all the statistics are showing us that women's rights are going backwards. And as I just said, the Marmot Review, he's not a women's rights activist now, is he? No. Um, And even he is saying 
it's killing women. Yeah. It's killing the poorer women. That's what's happening. How do we let working class women know and, and women within those intersections know that feminism can be for them? I think the word feminism can put women off. So I conversations, think, hasn't it? Yeah, so I think it's not about necessarily using that word. It's about listening to the women yep. and listening to what they need in their lives. For some women, feminism just means feeding their children. That, you know, that's what they need. That's what they're lacking. And yeah. so that's where you start. You start with where the women are at and support them. And that's what our members do. They're not like, we're the experts in feminism. This is what feminism is. They're about providing practical support to women who are at the sharp end of oppressive structures that feminism was created to address. You know, you don't have to get all theoretical you have to do the work. Yeah. That's what counts. Because you don't give a shit when you've not got enough money to put food on the table for your family. You, you don't give a monkeys about how many women are in a boardroom. It's irrelevant, but it's, I say it's the easy thing to work on uh, because it's not that challenging, really. And there are lots of organisations that focus on that, but we don't. That's not our job, and I don't think that's the trajectory to change. If you want to have real, what we call substantive, transformative change and equality for women, then you have to do what the women at the bottom of the pile need doing, not the women who are at the top of the pile. Yeah. Because what they need doing will have no impact on the women at the bottom yeah, of the pile. Absolutely. And so I always say a blueprint for all women's rights, which starts with the poorest women and the most oppressed, is actually a blueprint for a massive change in society for everybody's rights because women are not homogenous group you know they're working class they're black they're disabled they're poor they're lesbians they're migrant you know they they cover off every community that we have in this country it's a lot of work to do it is a lot of work to do and it's not easy no and i think we're sold that it might be easy it's, it's just a slogan easy. on a t-shirt and that is yeah, bullshit it's not easy well you know let's not talk about the um, co-option of feminism into mainstream capitalist profit-making companies oh, let's God, not even go there it's just the, baffling yeah i mean what i find in our work is the right thing to do and the things that need doing for us as an organization are usually the most difficult things to do and the most challenging and in some ways for people who want to give us money like funders some of the things we want to do are quite high risk because they're really hard and um, whereas some other organizations ideas which might be more palatable to funders um, and easier to achieve in some ways um, so you get that flashy almost instant result well it looks like a result, but I would say, is it a result? Yeah, what is right. the result? What is it we're trying to do? And how do you actually make change happen? If it's superficial, it might look good, but it's not changed. I mean, for example, we've had the Equal Pay Act. I mean, still haven't got equal pay. So laws alone or directives will not give you what you need. You need a multi-pronged approach that actually has the implementation of the laws. Yeah. We have plenty of laws to protect women, but they're not properly implemented. 
you know, and then we get into the whole thing of the institutions, which are the problem. So at the moment, there's lots of things going on about challenging the, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, yeah. around the fact that they're not saying bring this case of well, rape. Well, prosecutions yeah. have dropped. Well, they've been crap for years. Yeah, they've been and, rubbish. Um, you know, our members and Rape Crisis England and Wales members, I think... The stat is something like 90% of the women that use their services do not report. So if you think about it, it's only 10% reporting and then only whatever percent goes to court and then only what. It's like the message to men is if you rape somebody, you'll probably get away with it. Don't worry about it. That's the message. I'd say there's also a, a more damaging message that's put out to men which feeds into that and that is loads of women cry rape which is you know absolute nonsense well it is nonsense but men you know it's easy for men to believe that because they don't have to then think about it and challenge themselves Mm. or each other and there's no stats to back up the fact that women are being raped it's horrible but um you know the there is a lot of hidden work going on by women nobody's ever heard of doing great work all the time and we wouldn't have the changes that we've achieved without those women but there is no time to be complacent because i think actually we're now living in a proper full-on war against women in this country and i think we need to regroup and re-strategize and we all need to to share the power within women so we need to we need the white middle class women to share the resources and the access they have to decision makers and to allow the voices of other women to come through which is a challenge for them because anybody who wants social change has to reflect upon their own place within that and your own relative position of power what does that look like what does it mean and what do you need to do about it and back in the day we used to spend a lot more time having these like philosophical discussions if you like Mm -hmm. and now everybody's just rushing around doing things which needs doing but we also need to reflect upon what we're doing is it working could it be better uh, what do we need to change and i think we do need to change things and i need we i think we really need to reflect upon the fact that this white middle class policy approach of having meetings with decision makers uh, not challenging them too much because they will think you're too radical and then they won't like you it's not working yeah there will still be people who do that and that's fine but what else do we need to be doing and the biggest thing for me is the issue around solidarity and that's a difficult one to crack because it does mean letting go some of the power if you're in a position of relative power to another woman and it does mean sometimes shutting your mouth and letting somebody else speak (laughs) and i will hold up my hands to say i'm always talking you know, but we we have to check ourselves. And the other thing is, you know, there's this... I mean, you see it now highlighted in terms of race. There was a clip on social media yesterday of... Um, oh, of Don Butler. Yeah. Yeah, just being talked down when she's I explaining know. racism I by know. people going... It's, it's yeah. almost being called a racist is much more insulting yeah, than actual racism, right. which is yeah. crazy. And so there's this kind of... It creates an atmosphere where nobody wants to be criticised. Everyone's very touchy. Yeah, and that's not helpful, actually. Um, And also it just fuels oppressive narratives. But within the women's sector, 
where our whole reason for being um, was built upon achieving women's rights. I think we need to remember that we're built on human love. That's yeah. what we were giving to the to women and to each other, to support each other, to escape male violence, whatever. It was about human love and care. And we need to bring some of that back in the way that we are with each other and so that we can challenge each other and it's not taken as a personal attack and that it's okay and to remember nobody's right all the time yeah we I, don't own what is right we own, we own our opinions and they may not always chime together but we have to be looking at what is the 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 common denominator that we agree and can galvanize around somebody was saying to me yesterday powerful men don't have this problem do they I mean, they probably run massive multinationals and are in competition with each other, but they all go to Davos, sort their shit out and work together. Yeah. yeah. You know, whereas for us as women, that, that always seems more difficult to do. I'm not quite sure why. I think it's to do with our relationship to power, which is absolutely fucked up, basically, because we've never given any power. Power is never given to us like it is to men. So our roots to power has to be in quite a complicated way. And so that means our relationship to it is complicated if we do have it. And then the relative position of some women to others. You know, we need to talk about these things, but we need to be able to hear each other and accept our realities and also honour each other and our rights our rights to self-organise as well. Thank not you. fall into this whole thing of the women's sector becoming an industry. We're not an industry. We're a movement to achieve women's rights. Let's not forget that. I think you're right, that whole like um, sort of relationship to power. But also that hangover that's still happening of women being pitted against each yeah. other, which yeah. is a tale Absolutely. as old as time. Absolutely. And who's done that to us? The patriarchy. So we need to shape that off instead of this yeah, race yeah. to be to who can be the yeah. biggest victim mm. and cancel culture is getting us absolutely nowhere. Mm, 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 so let's mm. talk about the biggest myths within the women's equality movement. I really like the myth. Oh, but we've got it. We've sorted. We're equal oh, now. God. What are your favourites? Oh, God. Well, <laughs> it's not a favourite. It's the one that makes me roll my eyes the most. Because, you know, if you just go and do a bit of research yourself and look at some statistic, that is completely blown out of the water mm -hmm. as an absolute and utter lie. Yep. It's, it's, it's a lie. Oh, what are some of my other pet hates? We've got so many. <laughs> um... I love the fact that male violence isn't a thing. That's a good one. Oh, it doesn't God. exist. It really does. Yeah, it that, really does, I mean, people. again, you just look at the statistics. I think one that really worries me is like, oh, well, all women are bitches and they never help each other and, you know, women managers are more horrible and nasty than male managers. You know, that kind of thing that actually women cannot have any solidarity. Yeah. Because although obviously there's always an element of truth to any seed of of myth and and people will have personal experiences that bear that out 
Yeah, because some women are bitches are allowed to be because humans were complicated. Yeah, yeah, we are. And as I say, you know, you need to have human love. But also what has kept most of us alive is the bitch within us that has gone, <laughs> no, I'm not giving in. I am going to survive. I'm on. going to survive. Because actually, if you look at the lives of women globally and the level of oppression and violent oppression of women and yeah. girls... It's a miracle that we're still more than half the population and that we're alive, actually. It's a miracle. When you talk to women and you hear their stories of some of the things that have happened to them that are mostly at the hands of men, you're just like, wow, you're still alive. You know, so we, we are actually very powerful. And I, I do wonder if that is part of the fear of of men and the patriarchy that we have to be oppressed because we're quite amazing we're amazing as think, a as I a species absolutely it. on so many levels and we survive so much and we keep going you know women are often they're the main carers of the family of the children they're often the main carers of the community around them and the elderly you know the unpaid bloody labour of women oh, yeah. um, is, is worth billions and billions and billions. It's and worth so, pointing out the Young Women's Trust at the moment. They've got this brilliant yes, page on their website yes. where you can put in what yes. hours you do, social yeah. care, housework, yeah. and find out the amount of hours that you are not That's being right. paid for. And the, the un, right. that means that the unburdened workforce, brackets, men, yeah. um, are able to go and have work and leisure time yeah. that yeah. is easily split. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. That's true, and it also... That then translates across to women's organisations. So we did um, a piece of research a few years ago that showed women's health charities save the state at least half a billion pounds a year. Wow. The, the savings that the women's sector makes, not just individual women, which is true too, but women's organisations, the work they do saves the state billions upon billions upon billions. And then also there's the other side, which is the cost of violence to the state, yeah. which is millions. I don't know if it's 60 million. I can't remember the figure. That's when you get to a point of having to acknowledge that the economic arguments that the government makes are actually not true. They're not yeah. true. The, the war on women is ideological driven. It has got nothing to do with saving money because what they're doing is actually wasting money. They're not saving it. Oh, and it's it absolutely women know your place. All you have to, you, the, the easiest way, to, I think, to see that is to look at the rights being rolled back on reproductive rights and women's rights yeah, to bodily yeah, autonomy. Absolutely. And that's changed significantly, like, from when I had my daughter, which is quite some years ago, and it was during the time of a great surgence of women's rights. There was then a thing that women used to go into labour with no episiotomy written on their legs. Amazing. Yeah, so there's a real strong movement about reclaiming control of our body and our health. But now, you know, I hear stories from pregnant women where strangers say to them what are you doing you shouldn't be drinking coffee oh yeah uh, what are you yeah. doing you shouldn't be smoking you shouldn't be doing strangers it's like hello when did our bodies all of a sudden become owned by public again and men mostly yeah and that's a very very scary example and you know an alarm bell as to what is happening in society generally that women's bodies are becoming public property again and that, you know, being pregnant 
is actually you're just a vessel. Yeah, that and you've got stuff like the the guy in Venezuela saying that women should have six children. Do it for your country. <laughs> Come on, man. You you pop six children out the end of your bell end. Do you like, see how you like it? That's not going to stymie you being in the workforce and progressing no. as a human being, no. is it? If all you're no. going to do is, yeah. is, yeah. is be forced to make children, be handmaids, basically. Mm, wow. Hey listeners, we very much like you listening, but we would bloody love you to become viewers. Our live gigs are things of joy, so you should totally come to one. Our next show is in Birmingham on Sunday the 29th of March at the very civilised time of 5pm. And Hannah and I will be chatting with the boss, Sarah Millican, the very talented actor and playwright Helen Monks, excellent comedian and actor Janice Connolly, aka Mrs Barbara Nice, and A.N. Other T.B.A. We're also in the process of finalising gig bookings in Brighton, Manchester, Milton Keynes, London and Edinburgh. So keep an eye on our website for details of those bad boys. That website? www.standardissuepodcast.com Let's talk about women's spaces because obviously a lot of the charities and organisations that fall under the umbrella of the Women's Resource Centre are about providing those spaces for women, whether they're safe spaces or spaces for women to talk about how to progress and fight for those rights. Why are they vital? Okay, <laughs> so women's spaces are absolutely critical for women to have any chance of improving their life experiences and actually realising their rights. They're the backbone of the women's sector mm -hmm. and they began, you know, if you, if you mark, it's 50 years of Women's Liberation Conference this year and what used to happen was things about women's groups, so there might be a little women's group in the library and this whole thing of consciousness raising started and so women would just meet with other women just to talk and that was how they started to realise that what was happening to them was happening to each other. Yeah. And so then what you get is um, this shared understanding of actually it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because this is how society works. I mean, uh, I used to uh, run a women's uh, refuge years ago. And every single woman that comes to, that comes to a women's refuge thinks it's their fault. Yeah. And so part of the uniqueness of the women's sector is that we don't just focus on individualizing that experience women understand and are supported to understand that this is happening across the whole country mm -hmm. and across the world it's not because there's something wrong with you you know and this is another danger that we're in now is this whole movement around individual and competing needs that's been supported by postmodernist theory, neoliberalist thinking, where structural analysis of oppression has been removed from the dialogue, that is not helpful and it supports a, a level of victim blaming actually. Yeah. That actually if you just do this, this and this you'll be alright. No, it's not the person we need to change. It's the structures. Oh, God, absolutely. And so part of that women-only space is about women being able to go on their own journey of thinking and discussion and sharing that leads them to a place of understanding 
that it's a structural issue, not an individual one, because whilst women take responsibility for the discrimination they face, which is not their responsibility, they are trapped in things of guilt and shame. And, you know, being an ex-Catholic, I know very well how... I'd high-five, apart from the coronavirus, <laughs> prohibits this. <laughs> you know, I know how damaging those those um, emotions are. They run deep. Yeah, they do run deep. Whereas if women start to understand it as a structural issue, that is very liberating for them and empowering. And mm -hmm. that is critical to change, is liberated, empowered women who are enraged because rage is what keeps us going. It's the energy that we get to continue our struggle. You know, people often, oh, don't be angry. No, we need to be angry. Yeah. Because that's a normal response to what's happening. And then channel it. Channel it. That's the critical thing is what you do with that anger and rage so that you don't internalise it on yourself or put it out to other individuals, but actually it becomes the driver of your political action. Yeah. Would you encourage women who maybe haven't found a space that fits them to, to create spaces? Absolutely. 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 Even if it's just going out with your friends or, I don't know, sewing, knitting, reading a book. I mean, a friend of mine sent me some uh, research ages ago because she knows what my work is and I'm obsessed with women's rights. Oh, once that, once that alarm goes off, that's it. it it's You're, true, actually. It, it doesn't go away at it's all. It's true. And she, I think it was from America, but it, um, it said the most critical thing for women's health and well-being and a, a de-stressing activity was to spend times with your girlfriends, your female friends. Yeah. And so that's really interesting. I mean, it's got nothing to do with women's rights, that bit of research. But, you know, even on that level, it's good for you. It's a de-stressor. Even if you're not going to get political, it actually is better for your health. Yeah, and it's it's actually quite an easy change to make if you're not already doing that. I mean, I think the thing is that women who have not been in women-only spaces or have only been experienced something negative from another woman, like a boss at work who was horrible or their mum was horrible or their sister or whatever, and may have then avoided those spaces, the, you know, there isn't that quite understanding of what it brings we some years ago ran a women's leadership training and um it was women only you know because of the funder we have to survey and evaluate to the end of the world yeah but part of what we wanted to gather as well was the stuff around women only and the impact so when the women came and applied to join the course they were asked why have you joined the course? Is it because it's free? Is it because it's women only? Blah, blah, blah. And like only about 10% of them said it was because it was women only. At the end of the course, when we asked them again, had it been important? Had it made a difference? Over 90% wow. of them said it made a huge difference to them. And so until you experience that, you can't understand what it is. And it's quite hard to explain in some ways. Because it's um, it's a journey around your thinking and your feelings. Yeah. You know, you can't go X, Y, Z. It is a journey of yourself and your spirit and your whole being. Absolutely. I was massively bullied at school by girls. 
and because I was I'm, I was sharp and I, I could make people laugh, that was my sort of protection. But it also meant that I, and I, I liked playing football. I was sort of lumped in with the boys, and I thought, well, maybe that's me then. Like I don't want to be around lots of other yeah, girls because they're yeah, mean. They're, they're, yeah, I don't yeah, fit in. Yeah. And it took me until my twenties when, just by accident, I found myself in work that actually surrounded me with women, and I was like, fucking hell, this is brilliant. And there was a real light bulb moment of, oh, actually, just that one experience, which was horrible at the yeah, time, yeah. doesn't mean that that's how it's got to be. And you're oh, right, yeah. it was this yeah. quite big emotional journey. Mm, it's it so worth it. Yeah, it's so it is. And, and women get so much out of those women-only spaces. They tell us that all the time, all the time. It's really... I know the word empowering's overused. I know what you mean. But it, it actually, it gives something important. I mean, one of the things that I think violence, sexist discrimination does to women over periods of time, it actually creates holes in our souls, mm -hmm. um, which we have to find ways of mending. Yep. Um, and that's complicated. Um, and I think some women try to mend that in ways that, that's not very helpful um but actually coming together in those groups and supporting each other and supporting yourself and taking responsibility for your own development is is a way to start to fix those holes in yourselves let's talk about a campaign that women's resource center is running where there's an option for women to get involved and to help out and that is the payback the tampon tax campaign yeah. uh, there's some cheering going on cheering <laughs> quite quiet cheering because we have to all women uh, so vivian tell me tell me about it and okay. how people can get involved okay so i love this campaign for so many reasons I just like the public saying tampons, actually. <laughs> I like to hear the Put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, women's bleeding periods, menstruation, whatever you want to call it, is still a taboo subject, really. Oh, it's so shameful, this natural thing that happens to 52% so, of the population. So it's great that it, that word is kind of it's getting said there. a bit more. Yeah. But the campaign itself, it's basically exposing the government not upholding their promise so george osborne when he was the chancellor after people had kind of campaigned around getting rid of the vat on tampons and sanitary luxury towels. items yeah, Vivian. luxury items right. i know i know it's <laughs> so angry <laughs> i don't think they'd say that if women just walked around letting the blood go down the streets <laughs> and all over the bus seats I mean, and I the tube seats to you quite a few times you know i think then there might be a shift yeah but that's why we're meant to keep it as a secret, isn't it? So anyway, he pledged that the money raised from VAT would go to, and I quote, women's health and support charities. That is a direct quote. You can Google it, look it up. I believe you. In case listeners don't. Anyway, so then we were like, oh my God, at last, we're going to have some money for us, for our sector, because we are... We're impoverished in the sector, you know, you'd expect that as part of discrimination mm -hmm. that we get the least money. We were like, yeah, brilliant, fantastic. You know, we couldn't believe that we felt warm Seen. and cosy towards George Osborne. No. And we, we felt acknowledged. Yeah. You know, we that felt must acknowledged. Have been a doubly weird feeling. It, it was. <laughs> it was quite conflicting. But anyway, <laughs> especially after I saw him booed by the whole Olympic Stadium when he was giving out medals. Wow. The whole stadium booed well, him. well done stadium. Anyway, 
that's an aside. So, <laughs> um, he said that the fun was announced and basically uh, over the... I think it's five, is it five years? I'm not sure. Over the years that it's been given out, it's been given to less and less women's orgs until last the last uh, round of grants out of ten awards, only one was to a women's org. The year before, it was only two. Where's it going then? Well, it's going to general charities, you know, generalist charities who are not specialist or women's health and support charities. Um, so it's going to them. So we're literally bleeding for everyone. Well, we're meant to carry the weight of the world. Carers of the world. And never complain. Right. But we're sick of that and we are complaining. Yay! And we're saying, come on, enough is enough. We have to do something. The women's sector's up in arms about it. They can't believe it. Everybody thought, oh, we're going to have the opportunity to get some money from our blood yeah come back to us and no it's getting given to every other bugger and it's a massive pot of money because obviously women have to buy the well, women and girls have to the buy these years, products a very uh, very good economists have estimated that in the lifetime of the vat on tampons and sanitary towels approximately 700 million has been collected Fucking and up. so actually we want that money back where it deserves and we want it to support those women who are dying because of government policy. We want it to support the women who are on the streets, left destitute, the women who've got nowhere to go, fleeing domestic violence. We want it for those women, yeah. for them to have their rights and have a life. And don't forget, most women have children. So if you are denying women their rights, right to a home, right to food, right to safety, right to free from violence... You're doing that to their children as well. Yeah. Um, and so the campaign, we've got a petition, but we've also got a crowdfunder because it's a very difficult campaign to get money for. And, and for us to move the campaign, we've got to do the work. Yeah, of course. And so we need money to pay women to get on with the work as well because funders don't seem to think it's that. Tampons aren't sexy, Vivian. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is part of the whole thing of what funders think is worth funding yeah. and also the fact that sometimes how are they using their power? They've got all the money and influence and we have to go there asking them, fitting into their criteria, which yeah. sometimes might not be what needs doing at the time. We're the experts in what's going on and I think sometimes we need them to listen to us a little bit more. And so, yeah, please donate, everyone, even if it's 50p a pound. Every single pound helps. You know, it all makes a difference. If we've got 20,000 followers on Twitter, if they all gave us a quid, yeah. we'd have 20 grand. It's nothing. I think that, you know, people are so bombarded with do this, do that. But this is like, it's an amazing campaign. Yeah. Come on, the Tampon Tax campaign, it's fantastic. And we're so excited that um, the wonderful, fabulous feminist actress Gemma Arterton oh, has made a cracking. little donation. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And, you know, that's just brilliant. So where can people find more information on the Payback the Tampon Tax campaign and also on Women's Resource Centre in general? Okay, so our website is www.wrc.org.uk and that's the best place to make a start. It's a lovely website. It's all been revamped by our fabulous young women who know about these things because I don't. <laughs> and it's just, I'm so proud of them. They've done a brilliant job. 
And Vivian, you're a joy on Twitter. Where can people follow you? My Twitter is at Viv Hayes. Yeah, she's fierce. Give her a follow. It's great. <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure sort of putting the world to rights with you. Thank you so oh, much for chatting to great. me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Awesome. Happy International Women's Day! Happy International Women's Day, yes. Standard Issue for All Women.